Our goal at the Sleepy Bookshelf is to help the world get better sleep. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners and share the gift of a good night's rest. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. This evening we'll be returning to Little Women, but before we do that, Take a moment here to breathe and relax. Breathe in. Hold that breath. Exhale. Do this one more time. Inhale, drawing up. Hold it. Exhale. Lovely. Last time, Joe was marching out of the house under the guise of going out for exercise. Since the New Year's Eve ball, Joe had had her mind set on making friends with Laurie, but she hadn't seen him in weeks, till one day she saw his face looking out of one of the high up windows. It was there now, and she watched Mr. Lawrence drive away before throwing a snowball up to the window to get Laurie's attention. They had a brief exchange whereby Laurie told Joe he had been unwell, and Joe invited herself over to keep him company. They spent the afternoon getting to know one another better. Laurie shared that he had often peered into the March House parlour when the curtains were undrawn in the evenings and admired the family atmosphere, especially so since he had no mother. Then he took her to the library where she was in awe of all the wonderful books he had available to him. Laurie disappeared for a moment when a bell rang and Joe was musing out loud about the portrait of his grandfather in the library when the man himself startled her. Questioning her quite sternly, he suddenly turned very kind and invited her to have dinner with them. Joe left with a promise from Laurie to come back and see them when he was better. We pick up tonight with the friendship between the two houses flourishing. So just close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. (laughs) 
Chapter 6 Beth Finds the Palace Beautiful The big house did prove a palace beautiful, though it took some time for all to get in, and Beth found it very hard to pass the lions. Old Mr. Lawrence was the biggest one, but after he had called and said something funny or kind to each one of the girls and talked over old times with their mother, nobody felt much afraid of him, except timid Bear. The other lion was the fact that they were poor and Laurie rich, for this made them shy of accepting favors which they could not return. But after a while, they found that he considered them the benefactors and could not do enough to show how grateful he was for Mrs. March's motherly welcome, their cheerful society, and the comfort he took in that humble home of theirs. So they soon forgot their pride and interchanged kindness without stopping to think which was the greater. All sorts of pleasant things happened about that time, for the new friendship flourished like grass in spring. Everyone liked Laurie, and he privately informed his tutor that the Marches were regularly splendid girls. With the delightful enthusiasm of youth, they took the solitary boy into their midst and made much of him, and he found something very charming in the innocent companionship of these simple-hearted girls. Never having known mothers or sisters, he was quick to feel the influences they brought about him, Their busy, lively ways made him ashamed of the indolent life he led. He was tired of books and found people so interesting now that Mr. Brooke was obliged to make very unsatisfactory reports, for Laurie was always playing truant and running over to the marches. Never mind. Let him take a holiday and make it up afterward, said the old gentleman. The good lady next door says he is studying too hard and needs young society, amusement, and exercise. I suspect she is right, and that I've been coddling the fellow as if I'd been his grandmother. Let him do what he likes, as long as he is happy can't get into mischief in that little nunnery over there. Mrs. March is doing more for him than we can. What good times they had, to be sure. Such plays and tableau, such sleigh rides and skating frolics, such pleasant evenings in the old parlor, and now and then such fun little parties at the great house. Meg could walk in the conservatory whenever she liked and revel in bouquets. 
Joe browsed over the new library voraciously and convulsed the old gentleman with her criticisms. Amy copied pictures and enjoyed beauty to her heart's content, and Laurie played Lord of the Manor in the most delightful style. But Beth, though yearning for the grand piano, could not pluck up the courage to go to the Mansion of Bliss, as Meg called it. She went once with Joan, but the old gentleman, not being aware of her infirmity, stared at her so hard from under his heavy eyebrows and said, hey, so loud that he frightened her so much her feet chattered on the floor. She never told her mother, and she ran away, declaring she would never go there anymore, not even for the dear piano. No persuasions or enticements could overcome her fear, till the fact coming to Mr. Lawrence's ear in some mysterious way, he set about mending matters. During one of the brief calls he made, he artfully led the conversation to music and talked away about great singers whom he had seen, fine organs he had heard, and told such charming anecdotes that Beth found it impossible to stay in her distant corner, but crept nearer and nearer as if fascinated. At the back of his chair, she stopped and stood listening with her great eyes wide open and her cheeks red with excitement of this unusual performance. Taking no more notice of her than if she had been a fly, Mr. Lawrence talked on about Laurie's lessons and teachers, and presently, as if the idea had just occurred to him, he said to Mrs. March, The boy neglects his music now, and I am glad of it, for he was getting too fond of it. The piano suffers for want of use. Wouldn't some of your girls like to run over and practice on it now and then, just to keep it in tune, you know, ma'am? Beth took a step forward and pressed her hands tightly together to keep from clapping them, for this was an irresistible temptation, and the thought of practicing on that splendid instrument quite took her breath away. Before Mrs. March could reply, Mr. Lawrence went on with an odd little nod and smile. They needn't see nor speak to anyone, but run in at any time, for I'm shut up in my study at the other end of the house. Rory is out a great deal, and the servants are never near the drawing room after nine o'clock. Here he rose as if going, and Beth made up her mind to speak, for that last arrangement left nothing to be desired. Please tell the young ladies what I say, 
and if they don't care to come, why, never mind. Here, a little hand slipped into his, and Beth looked up at him with a face full of gratitude as she said in her earnest yet timid way, Oh, sir, they do care very, very much. Are you the musical girl? He asked without any startling hey as he looked down at her very kindly. I'm Beth. I love it dearly. And I'll come if you are quite sure nobody will hear me and be disturbed, she added, fearing to be rude and trembling at her own boldness as she spoke. Not a soul, my dear. The house is empty half the day, so come and drum away as much as you like, and I shall be obliged to you. How kind you are, sir. Beth blushed like a rose under the friendly look he wore, but she was not frightened now and gave the hand a grateful squeeze because she had no words to thank him for the precious gift he had given her. The old gentleman softly stroked the hair off her forehead and, stooping down, he kissed her, saying in a tone few people ever heard, I had a little girl once with eyes like these. God bless you, my dear. Good day, madam. And he went in a great hurry. Beth had a rapture with her mother and then rushed up to impart the glorious news to her family of invalids as the girls were not home. How blithely she sang that evening and how they all laughed at her because she woke Amy in the night by playing piano on her face in her sleep. Next day, having seen both the old and young gentleman out of the house, Beth, after two or three retreats, fairly got in at the side door and made her way as noiselessly as any mouse to the drawing room where the idol stood. Quite by accident, of course, some pretty, easy music lay on the piano, and with trembling fingers and frequent stops to listen and look about, Beth at last touched the great instrument and straightway forgot her fear, herself, and everything else but the unspeakable delight which the music gave her, for it was like the voice of a beloved friend. She stayed till Hannah came to take her home to dinner, but she had no appetite and could only sit and smile upon everyone in a general state of beatitude. After that, the little brown hood slipped through the hedge nearly every day, and the great drawing room was haunted by a tuneful spirit that came and went 
unseen. She never knew that Mr. Lawrence opened his study door to hear the old-fashioned airs he liked. She never saw Laurie mount guard in the hall to warn the servants away. She never suspected that the exercise books and new songs which she found in the rack were put there for her especial benefit. And when he talked to her about music at home, she only thought how kind he was to tell things that helped her so much. So she enjoyed herself heartily and found what isn't always the case that her granted wish was all she had hoped. Perhaps it was because she was so grateful for this blessing that a greater was given her. At any rate, she deserved both. Mother, I'm going to work Mr. Lawrence a pair of slippers. He's so kind to me. I must thank him and I don't know any other way. Can I do it? Asked Beth a few weeks after that eventful call of his. Yes, dear. It will please him very much and be a nice way of thanking him. The girls will help you about them and I will pay for the making up, replied Mrs. Marge, who took peculiar pleasure in granting Beth's request because she so seldom asked anything for herself. After many serious discussions with Meg and Joe, the pattern was chosen, the materials bought, and the slippers begun. A cluster of grave yet cheerful pansies on a deeper purple ground was pronounced very appropriate and pretty, and Beth worked away early and late with occasional lifts over hard parts. She was a nimble little needlewoman, and they were finished before anyone got tired of them. Then she wrote a short, simple note, and with Laurie's help, got them smuggled onto the study table one morning before the old gentleman was up. When this excitement was over, Beth, waited to see what would happen. All day passed, and a part of the next, before any acknowledgement arrived, and she was beginning to fear she had offended her crotchety friend. On the afternoon of the second day, she went out to do an errand and give poor Joanna, the invalid doll, her daily exercise. As she came up the street on her return, she saw three, yes, four heads popping in and out of the parlor windows, and the moment they saw her, several hands were waved, and several joyful voices called out, Here's a letter from the old gentleman. Come quick and read it. Oh, Beth, he sent you, began Amy, 
gesticulating with unseemly energy. But she got no further, for Joe quenched her by slamming down the window. Beth hurried on in a flutter of suspense. At the door, her sisters seized and bore her to the parlor in a triumphal procession, all pointing and saying at once, Look there, look there. Beth did look and turned pale with delight and surprise, for there stood a little cabinet piano with a letter lying on the glossy lid directed like a signboard to Miss Elizabeth March. For me, gasped Beth, holding on to Joe and feeling as if she should tumble down. It was such an overwhelming thing altogether. Yes, all for you, my precious. Isn't it splendid of him? Don't you think he's the dearest old man in the world? Here's the key in the letter. We didn't open it. We're dying to know what he says, answered Joe, hugging her sister and offering the note. You read it. I can't. I feel so beside myself. Now it is too lovely. And Beth hid her face in Joe's apron, quite upset by her present. Joe opened the paper and began to laugh, for the first words she saw were, Miss March, dear madam. Oh, how nice it sounds. I wish someone would write to me so, said Amy who thought the old-fashioned address very elegant. I have had many pairs of slippers in my life, but I never had any that suited me so well as yours, continues Joe. Heart's ease is my favorite flower, and these will always remind me of the gentle giver. I'd like to pay my debts, so I know you will allow the old gentleman to send you something which once belonged to the little granddaughter he lost. With hearty thanks and best wishes, I remain your grateful friend and humble servant, James Lawrence. There, Beth, that's an honor to be proud of. I'm sure Laurie told me how fond Mr. Lawrence used to be of the child who died and how he kept all her little things carefully. Just think, he's given you her piano. That comes of having big blue eyes and loving music, said Joe, trying to soothe Beth, who trembled and looked more excited than she had ever been before. See the cunning brackets to hold the candles and the nice green silk pocket up with a gold rose in the middle and a pretty rack and stool, all complete, added Meg, opening the instrument and displaying its beauties. 
your humble servant, James Lawrence. Only think of his writing that to you. I'll tell the girls. They'll think it's splendid, said Amy, much impressed by the note. Try it, honey. Let's hear the sound of the baby piano, said Hannah, who always took a share in the family joys and sorrows. So, Beth tried it, and everyone pronounced it the most remarkable piano ever heard. It had evidently been newly tuned and put in apple pie order, but perfect as it was, I think the real charm lay in the happiest of all happy faces which leaned over it as Beth lovingly touched the beautiful black and white keys and pressed the bright pedals. You'll have to go and thank him, said Joe by way of a joke, for the idea of the child's really going never entered her head. Yes, I mean to. I guess I'll go now, before I get frightened thinking about it. And to the utter amazement of the assembled family, Beth walked deliberately down the garden, through the hedge, and in at the Lawrence's door. Well, I wish I may die if it isn't the strangest thing I've ever seen. The piano has turned her head. She'd never have gone in her right mind, said Hannah, staring after her, while the girls were rendered quite speechless by the miracle. They would have been still more amazed if they had seen what Beth did afterward. If you will believe me, she went and knocked at the study door before she gave herself time to think and when a gruff voice called out, Come in, she did go in, right up to Mr. Lawrence, who looked quite taken aback, and held out her hand, saying, with only a small quaver in her voice, I came to thank you, sir, for... But she didn't finish, for he looked so friendly she forgot her speech and only remembering that he had lost the little girl he loved she put both arms round his neck and kissed him if the roof of the house had suddenly flown off the old gentleman wouldn't have been more astonished but he liked it oh dear yes he liked it amazingly and he was so touched and pleased by that confiding little kiss that all his crustiness vanished, and he just set her on his knee and laid his wrinkled cheek against her rosy one, feeling as if he had got his own little granddaughter back again. Beth ceased to fear him from that moment, and sat there talking to him as cosily as if she had known him all her life. For love casts out fear, 
and gratitude can conquer pride. When she went home, he walked with her to her own gate, shook hands cordially, and touched his hat as he marched back again, looking very stately and erect, like a handsome, soldierly old gentleman as he was. When the girls saw that performance, Joe began to dance a jig by way of expressing her satisfaction. Amy nearly fell out of the window in her surprise, and Meg said, with uplifted hands, Well, I do believe the world is coming to an end. Chapter 7 Amy's Valley of Humiliation That boy is a perfect cyclops, isn't he? said Amy one day as Laurie clattered by on horseback with a flourish of his whip as he passed. How dare you say so when he's got both his eyes, and very handsome ones they are too, said Joe who resented any slighting remarks about her friend. I didn't say anything about his eyes, and I don't see why you need to fire up when I admire his riding, Amy replied. Oh my goodness, that little goose means a centaur, and she called him a cyclops, said Joe with a burst of laughter. You needn't be so rude, retorted Amy. I just wish I had a little of the money Laurie spends on that horse, she added as if to herself, yet hoping her sisters would hear. Why? asked Meg kindly, for Joe had gone off in another laugh at Amy's blunder. I need it so much. I'm dreadfully in debt, and it won't be my turn to have the rag money for a month. In debt, Amy? What do you mean? And Meg looked sober. Why, I owe at least a dozen pickled limes, and I can't pay them, you know, till I have money. For Mommy forbade my having anything charged at the shop. Tell me all about it. Are the limes in fashion now? Used to be prickling bits of rubber to make balls. And Meg tried to keep her countenance. Amy looked so grave and important. Why, you see, the girls are always buying them. And unless you want to be thought mean, you must do it too. It's nothing but limes now for everyone is sucking them in their desks in school time and trading them off for pencils, bead rings, paper dolls or something else at recess. If one girl likes another, she gives her a line. If she's mad with her, she eats one before her face and doesn't offer even a suck. They treat by turns, and I've had ever so many I haven't returned them, and I ought, for they are debts of honor, you know. <sighs> How much will pay them off and restore your credit? Asked Meg, taking out her purse 
a quarter would more than do it, and leave a few cents over for a treat for you. Don't you like limes? Not much. You may have my share. Here's the money. Make it last as long as you can, for it isn't very plenty, you know. Oh, thank you. I must be so nice to have pocket money. I'll have a grand feast, for I haven't tasted a lime this week. Felt delicate about taking any, as I couldn't return them, and I'm actually suffering for one. Next day, Amy was rather late at school, but could not resist the temptation of displaying, with pardonable pride, a moist brown paper parcel before she consigned it to the inmost recesses of her desk. During the next few minutes, the rumor that Amy March had got 24 delicious limes, she ate one on the way, and was going to treat circulated throughout her set, and the attentions of her friends became quite overwhelming. Katie Brown invited her to her next party on the spot. Mary Kingsley insisted on lending her her watch till recess, and Jenny Snow, a satirical young lady who had basely twitted Amy upon her limeless state, promptly buried the hatchet and offered to furnish answers to certain appalling sums that Amy had not forgotten Miss Snow's cutting remarks about some persons whose noses could smell other people's limes and stuck up people who were not proud enough to ask for them. And she instantly crushed that Snow girl's hopes by the withering telegram. You needn't be polite all of a sudden, for you won't get any. A distinguished personage happened to visit the school that morning, and Amy's beautifully drawn maps received praise, which honor to her foe rankled in the soul of Miss Snow and caused Miss March to assume the airs of a studious young peacock. But, alas, alas... Pride goes before a fall, and the revengeful snow turned the tables with disastrous success. No sooner had the guest paid the usual stale compliments and bowed himself out than Jenny, under pretense of asking an important question, informed Mr. Davis, the teacher, that Amy March had pickled limes in her desk. Now, Mr. Davis had declared limes a contraband article and solemnly vowed to publicly forrule the first person who was found breaking the law. This much-enduring man had succeeded in banishing chewing gum after a long and stormy war, had made a bonfire of the confiscated novels and newspapers, 
had suppressed a private post office, had forbidden distortions of the face, nicknames, and caricatures, and done all that one man could do to keep half a hundred rebellious girls in order. Boys are trying enough to human patience, goodness knows, but girls are infinitely more so, especially to nervous gentlemen with tyrannical tempers and no more talent for teaching than Dr. Blimber. Mr. Davis knew any quantity of Greek, Latin, algebra, and ologies of all sorts, so he was called a fine teacher, and manners, morals, feelings, and examples were not considered of any particular importance. It was a most unfortunate moment for denouncing Amy, and Jenny knew it. Mr. Davis had evidently taken his coffee too strong that morning. There was an east wind which always affected his neuralgia, and his pupils had not done him the credit which he felt he deserved. Therefore, to use the expressive, if not elegant, language of a schoolgirl, he was as nervous as a witch and as cross as a bear. The word limes was like fire to powder. His yellow face flushed, and he rapped on his desk with an energy which made Jenny skip to her seat with unusual rapidity. Young ladies, attention if you please. At the stern order, the buzz ceased, and fifty pairs of blue, black, grey, and brown eyes were obediently fixed upon his awful countenance. Miss March, come to the desk. Amy rose to comply with outward composure, but a secret fear oppressed her, for the lines weighed upon her conscience. Bring with you the limes you have in your desk, was the unexpected command which arrested her before she got out of her seat. Don't take all, whispered a neighbor, a young lady of great presence of mind. Amy hastily shook out half a dozen and laid the rest down before Mr. Davis, feeling that any man possessing a human heart would relent when that delicious perfume met his nose. Unfortunately, Mr. Davis particularly detested the odor of the fashionable pickle, and disgust added to his wrath. Is that all? Not quite, stammered Amy. Bring the rest immediately. With a despairing glance at her set, she obeyed. You are sure there are no more? I never lie, sir. So I see. Now take these disgusting things 
two by two and throw them out of the window. There was a simultaneous sigh which created quite a little gust as the last hope fled and the treat was ravished from their longing lips. Scarlet with shame and anger, Amy went to and fro six dreadful times, and as each doomed couple, looking oh so plump and juicy, fell from her reluctant hands, this, this was too much. All flashed indignant or appealing glances at the inexorable Davis, and one passionate lime lover burst into tears. As Amy returned from her last trip, Mr. Davis gave a portentous hem and said in his most impressive manner, Young ladies, you remember what I said to you a week ago. I'm sorry this has happened, but I never allow my rules to be infringed, and I never break my word. Miss March, hold out your hand. Amy started and put both hands behind her, turning on him an imploring look which pleaded for her better than the words she could not utter. She was rather a favorite with old Davis, as of course he was called, and it's my private belief that he would have broken his word if the indignation of one irrepressible young lady had not found vent in a hiss. That hiss faint as it was, irritated the irascible gentleman and sealed the culprit's fate. Your hand, Miss March, was the only answer her mute appeal received, and too proud to cry or beseech, Amy set her teeth, threw back her head defiantly, and bore without flinching several tingling blows on her little palm. They were neither many nor heavy. That made no difference to her. For the first time in her life, she had been struck, and the disgrace in her eyes was as deep as if he had knocked her down. You will now stand on the platform till recess, said Mr. Davis, resolving to do the thing thoroughly since he had begun. That was dreadful. It would have been bad enough to go to her seat and see the pitying faces of her friends or the satisfied ones of her few enemies, but to face the whole school with that shame fresh upon her, seemed impossible, and for a second she felt as if she could only drop down where she stood and break her heart with crying. A bitter sense of wrong and the thought of Jenny Snow helped her to bear it, and taking the ignominious place 
she fixed her eyes on the stove funnel above what now seemed a sea of faces and stood there, so motionless and white that the girls found it hard to study with that pathetic figure before them. During the 15 minutes that followed, the proud and sensitive little girl suffered a shame and pain which she never forgot. To others it might seem a ludicrous or trivial affair, but to her it was a hard experience, for during the twelve years of her life she had been governed by love alone, and a blow of that sort had never touched her before. The smart of her hand and the ache of her heart were forgotten in the sting of the thought. I shall have to tell at home, and they will be so disappointed in me. The fifteen minutes seemed an hour, but they came to an end at last, and the word recess had never seemed so welcome to her before. You can go, Miss March said Mr. Davis, looking as he felt uncomfortable. He did not soon forget the reproachful glance Amy gave him as she went, without a word to anyone, straight into the anteroom, snatched her things, and left the place forever, as she passionately declared to herself. She was in a sad state when she got home, and when the older girls arrived some time later, an indignation meeting was held at once. Mrs. Marge did not say much, but looked disturbed and comforted her afflicted little daughter in the tenderest manner. Meg bathed the insulted hand with glycerin and tears. Beth felt that even her beloved kittens would fail as a balm for griefs like this. Joe wrathfully proposed that Mr. Davis be arrested without delay, and Hannah shook her fist at the villain and pounded potatoes for dinner as if she had him under her pestle. No notice was taken of Amy's flight except by her maids, but the sharp-eyed demoiselle discovered that Mr. Davis was quite benignant in the afternoon, and also unusually nervous. Just before school closed, Joe appeared, wearing a grim expression as she stalked up to the desk and delivered a letter from her mother, then collected Amy's property and departed, carefully scraping the mud from her boots on the doormat as if she shook the dust of the place off her feet. Yes, you can have a vacation from school, but I want you to study a little every day with Beth, said Mrs. March that evening. I don't approve of corporal punishment, especially for girls. I dislike Mr. Davis's manner of teaching, and I don't think the girls you associate with are doing you any good. 
so I shall ask your father's advice before I send you anywhere else. That's good. I wish all the girls would leave and spoil his old school. Oh, it's perfectly maddening to think of those lovely lines, sighed Amy with the air of a martyr. I'm not sorry you lost them, for you broke the rules and deserved some punishment for your disobedience, was the severe reply, which rather disappointed the young lady, who expected nothing but sympathy. Do you mean you are glad? I was disgraced before the whole school, said Amy. I should not have chosen that way of mending a fault, replied her mother, but I'm not sure that it won't do you more good than a bolder method. You are getting to be rather conceited, my dear, but it's quite time you set about correcting it. You have a good many little gifts and virtues, but there is no need of parading them, for conceit spoils the finest genius." There is not much danger that real talent or goodness will be overlooked long, even if it is, the consciousness of possessing and using it well should satisfy one. The great charm of all power is modesty. So it is, cried Laurie, who was playing chess in a corner with Joe. I knew a girl once, You had a really remarkable talent for music, and she didn't know it. Never guessed what sweet little things she composed when she was alone, and wouldn't have believed it if anyone had told her. I wish I'd known that nice girl. Maybe she would have helped me. I'm so stupid, said Beth, who stood beside him, listening eagerly. You do know her, and she helps you better than anyone else could, answered Laurie, looking at her with such mischievous meaning in his merry black eyes that Beth suddenly turned very red and hid her face in the sofa cushion, quite overcome by such an unexpected discovery. Joe let Laurie win the game to pay for that praise of her Beth, who could not be prevailed upon to play for them after her compliment. So Laurie did his best and sang delightfully, being in a particularly lively humour, for to the marches he seldom showed the moody side of his character. When he was gone, Amy, who had been pensive all evening, said suddenly, as if busy over some new idea. Is Laurie an accomplished boy? Yes, he has had an excellent education and has much talent. He will make a fine man, if not spoiled by petting, replied her mother. And he isn't conceited, is he? asked Amy. Not in the least. That is why he is so charming, and we all like him so much. I see. It's nice to have accomplishments and be elegant, but not to show off or get perked up, said Amy 
thoughtfully. These things are always seen and felt in a person's manner and conversations, if modestly used, but it is not necessary to display them, said Mrs. March, any more than it's proper to wear all your bonnets and gowns and ribbons at once, that folks may know you've got them, added Joe, and the lecture ended in a laugh.